Well, thank you all for having me here. It's great an honor and a privilege to be here before you guys to present the word of the Lord. Uh, and I'm, I'm very excited for this. Um, as you look in your bulletin, you'll see that we'll be in Judges 6. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll be prepared. But while we're there, I want us to begin by thinking of a certain word that's courage. And specifically how it was viewed within the ancient Greeks and how they thought of this word courage. This will help give us the context of the narrative that we'll be going through in Judges 6 and the story of the man that we'll be talking about. You see, the Greeks had this in mind of courage. It's, it's between two extremes. One of them was fear. Fear of everything and not making a decision because of that fear. The second extreme is rashness, making a decision without regard to what that consequence may be. But courage fit right in the middle of those two. Courage doesn't mean one is without fear and acts rashly, but rather, it's quite the opposite. It's one who can stand and make action knowing that you're fearful, but willing to make that decision. As Aristotle wrote about courage, it is the ability to fear and withstand on the account of the right reason. Courage. This brings to mind so many stories that we often think through. One of them may be the story of the March on Normandy, with English and British forces, knowing that there was fear of going up against a superior army, going up against a beach that is well-guarded, but willing to do it because it was the right reason to. This can bring about the mindset of the American Revolutionary War, where a small group of soldiers came together to defeat a global superpower. It wasn't because they were without fear. They had fear. They just knew that there was a better reason to fight. They withstood that action. And there's many stories of courage that people have undergone where they had to stand in the gap between the current situation of fear and making a rash decision at the right time, in the right manner, and in the right way that changed the pages of history because of that. In a similar fashion, we'll encounter a familiar story, and that's the call of Gideon. In this narrative, courage isn't used, but the word valor is. And I want us to think through that as, as we look at the word valor, it can be an exchange of the word courage. As I've looked into the word and, and trying to figure it out and parse it out, it really just means the same thing, courage and valor in this case. It's being valiant in the right time, in the right manner, and having the right motivation to be valiant or courageous. And, and if there's a phrase I want us to really think through, it's that, it's that being valiant isn't just an instantaneous thing, but it takes time. It's a continual process that we go into, that we're learning, that we are being called into. Let's read Judges 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. 
And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you will dwell, but you have not obeyed me. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, the angel of the, the Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold. Here with the stones laid in due order, then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the words of the assurer that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night.
When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Ashura beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Ashura beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and camped at the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and they, were, they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it be done. Let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here. We thank you for who you are. Pray that the words that are spoken today are not my words, but your words. May anything that is not from you be taken out from memory, but May your words come through me as I am a vessel being used by you. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for all that you've done. In your son's name, amen. So we've heard this one before as we start off in chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. How common of an expression do we find that in the book of Judges and all throughout the history of Israel? They always did what was evil. Turning to other gods. Worshipping, serving, even giving their own bodies over to these gods. But we forget that they were told to completely destroy their enemies. So that way they wouldn't be tempted to even look at the other deities. But we find that's exactly what they did and they disobeyed the Lord. And so now they have been in a constant struggle of calling out to God, being saved by God, falling back into idol worship, falling back into their own ways, and then being oppressed physically because of their unwillingness to seek freedom spiritually. It's very important that we understand that, that their disobedience in all of what God has told them to do is causing their oppression in a physical form. It's been about 40 years. The last judge was Deborah and Barak. 
and they've experienced freedom. They've experienced the ability to not be oppressed, but then they fell back into doing what was evil. You see, the salvation that the Lord did provide them continuously wasn't because of their great o- grand obedience. Wasn't because they thought, hey, maybe this time we can just follow God and we'll be okay. It was often, well, if God just keeps saving us, then we don't really need to follow him. We can do what we want. We can do what pleases us. We can serve whatever God that pleases us because we at least know that when we call out to God, he's going to save us. And he does, not because of what they've done, but because of his grace that he has on them. God's grace is shown in that his salvation for his people doesn't come from the act of obedience from his people, but because of his loving desire to have his people serve him. His desire is for them to be freed, first and foremost, from the spiritual oppression of idolatrous worship. And it manifests through the salvation and the physical reality of the oppression that they seek from the people around them. But again, they forgot this salvation continually. And continually falling back into worshiping other idols, other gods. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midianites. You see, when we read this, you see that they also are hiding. They're so fearful. The one phrase God continually called his people to be was, do not fear for I am with you. Do not fear for I am with you. I am going before you. Do not fear. And what did the people of Israel do? They feared so much that they were hiding themselves into caves They were digging trenches to put themselves in so that way they wouldn't be found. You know, this does also remind me in World War II where where the Jewish people were hiding for days at a time in small crevices of houses that any sound that they made could be detected and then they would be taken away. In a similar fashion, that's what would be going on. They were hiding because they didn't want their lives to be taken. They didn't want their families to be taken, and they feared for that. And then they go and cry out to the Lord once more. And what we see next is we see a prophet ascend. Now, we don't know much about this prophet other than that he was a prophet. And we sometimes when we look at prophets, we're like, yes, there's going to be good news. He's going to say, like, the Lord's coming for you. But what does he say instead? You disobeyed God. This is what happens. It was never about their salvation from this prophet. It was about their indictment of their sins and their follies. It didn't provide them the hope of knowing that God was going to save them. It provided them of the reality of their situation of spiritual worship of idols and other deities. It left them feeling unsettled, I'd imagine. It didn't give them that nice feeling of hope that it's going to get better. There was no courage. There was no valor during this time. There was fear. They were living in caves and forts, strongholds, 
holes in the ground, anywhere that they could. But what was God really calling them to live? Was he calling them to live in that way? Was he calling them to be fearful? Absolutely not. And what we see next is really an astounding story of of someone who's coming from that position into a place of valor. Read with me in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophir, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, I know we don't often beat out wheat like we used to, right? We don't have that same process. And, and it's kind of funny when we, we look at that. We're like, okay, so he's beating in a wine press. Well, the funny thing is, is you can't really beat out wheat in a wine press because it's hidden underground. It's enclosed. The whole purpose of beating out wheat is to kind of throw it up in the air. And then the wind takes the chaff away. So that way the seed itself falls to the ground. So imagine trying to do that in an enclosed space where there is no wind. And so you're really not beating out wheat. All you're doing is just making a mess inside the wine press. <laughs> his job really wasn't making it better for his people. He was just too afraid to actually go outside. And understandably so. I don't think I'm in a place where I could say, man, I, I would go out there and do that. Maybe I would. Maybe I wouldn't. If I knew that my life was on the line and the Midianites were coming and taking everything that I had and there was a great fear of not just for myself but for my family and the people around me, oftentimes we, we look at that story and we don't understand the, the fine point of he was trying to make, get his sustenance in an enclosed space where it wasn't supposed to happen. He was under the wine press driven by fear into an enclosed space. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, I think in this case we see the Lord has a sense of humor. (laughs) We can look at that and say, can we really say Gideon is a man of valor if he's hiding in a wine press trying to beat out wheat? Can we really look at at anyone at that time and say, they're valorous, hiding in their caves, hiding in their little areas. No. But I don't think it was meant to be a sarcastic point of reference, but I think it was God calling Gideon to who God saw who he was and not who Gideon was. God saw Gideon as a man of valor and was calling him to live that life and wasn't just looking at who he was in that very moment, but who he was going to be. And we see that that this story isn't just an instantaneous, all right, I'm going to go out and be valiant. No, it takes time. It's not instantaneous where, where God called Gideon and Gideon was like, okay, give me a sword, let me go fight. Gideon's response is not of listening and accepting. You know, when we contrast it to maybe a Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, when confronted by the angel of saying, you're going to have a child, her reaction wasn't, but I'm this, 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 this. It was, may your will be done to me. Gideon's reaction was quite the opposite. He was preparing to explain why he can't do it with a litany of excuses. 
And how often do we find ourselves in that place when God calls us to do something? That we're so willing to say, all right, God, I know you're calling me to go do this, but what about this? What about this? What about this? And we can find our place more along the lines with Gideon than we can with anyone else because we're trying to think, God, like, if you're really calling me for this, then, like, I don't know if I can, and here's why. You know, some of his excuses were, I'm the least of my, we're we're the least of the tribe of Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my household. I'm this of my, of my area. I'm hiding in a wine press, God. Like, do you really think I can go out there and fight a numberless group of people? And sometimes I find myself in that. When, when working in ministry and working in what I do, I often wonder, God, am I really the right person to do this? Am I really the right person that can lead 120 high school students? Am I really the person that can provide spiritual counsel? But I realize that's more of my own insecurity speaking than the Spirit of God that is working inside me, growing me and teaching me and leading me. And I realize that it's my own fears that drive me away from obeying God than it is anything else. And he's calling us to be who we will be and not who we are. And that is the whole point of that being valiant does take time. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's a continual process. And God calls Gideon to be the one to strike down the Midianites. Yes, the Gideon who was under the wine press. Yes, the Gideon who was hiding from the Midianites. Yes, dot, 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 we can make a lot of assumptions about who Gideon was and what he was doing at that time. But he wasn't just calling him to go and do it right away. For the Lord knew that he didn't have the experience to be able to do it at that moment. The Lord saw that he needed to be taken and he needed to be trained and he needed to be understood to to build up his valiancy. And it isn't until Gideon actually realizes who God is that he's willing to listen. It's not until he realizes that he gave the offering in the fire showing the Lord's holiness and the disappearing of the Lord for him to say, oh, that was God. It took a fire from the Lord for me to recognize who it was. I've made a terrible mistake. In the Lord's grace and kindness, he didn't say, well, Gideon, you lost your chance. I'm moving on. No, what did he say? He said, you will not die. Go in the strength that I have given you. You see, and when we go through this story, we see that, that the first thing God calls him to do is to free his people from idol worship. He calls him to go and tear down an idol. An idol. And that, this isn't just like a, like a family heirloom. This isn't just something that is so sacred. But it is the center of worship, the center of sacrifice for his townspeople. And as he is hearing this, I can imagine his fear raising up and saying, you're asking me to tear down an idol. I could be killed for this. But his reaction is to go and do it. His reaction is to gather men around him, 
to be able to go and do it. And he doesn't do it, do it during the day, but he does it at night. And, and we see that, that he's taking those steps to being valiant. It's not an instantaneous. He's, he's taking each step of saying, this is what I need to do next. This is what I need to do next. When I think of this, I kind of think of like growing up. Like my dad was a big football fan, big Steelers fan, and I I can only imagine that if he had like an altar of like Steelers items, right? And I went and broke some of those. I can only imagine what his like reaction would be. Probably kind of scary. My stepdad was a, he loves fish tanks and he loves fish. And he had a, we had a huge one. And I could only imagine what would happen if I broke that, of what would happen. But, but then in my own mindset, I'm like, that that's, pales in comparison to what Gideon is needing to do. That pales in comparison. Because a couple fish that die is far, is far less than an idol that a townspeople sit and worship at. See, this is part of the problem. The Israelites were requesting God to save them from physical oppression before asking God to free them from spiritual oppression. And so often I think we can identify with that, that we ask God to save us in our physical realities without taking a personal inventory and saying, what do I need to be freed from that is holding me back right now? What steps do I need to take in my spiritual life that makes God the only one I'm serving? What is blocking that in my way? You know, sometimes it could be sports. Sometimes it could be our jobs and careers, our family. Oftentimes we don't have wooden sculptures in our house that we bow down to and worship at, but we have plenty of other things that captivate our attention and that we place so much time and effort into. You know, John Calvin once said that our hearts are factories of idols. We consistently can create idols for ourselves out of nothing. And we're always looking for something to place our time and worship in, in place of God, without even realizing it most of the time. And so when we think of being valued, it first comes from a desire to be freed from our sin and idolatry by Christ. We must understand that, that when we are freed from those things, our sin and our idolatry, we then can take those next steps. But we first must look and say, what do I need to be freed from that I'm worshiping? Gideon was afraid to take a stand of idolatry, and he did this by night. His first step into being valiant, by being obedient to God, but there was still fear in him. And we can see that being valiant does take time. I find this next par- portion of the scripture funny because it's, it's the townspeople waking up in the morning and, and coming and seeing their idol completely destroyed, their, their pole of fertility completely torn down, cut up, and used as wood to make a sacrifice for the true God of Israel. And they're infuriated. They're upset. They're mad. Their place of worship has been completely decimated. And so they do put together a little search team, and, and they find out, oh, it's Gideon, son of Joash. And so they go to Joash, and they're like, Joash, bring him out. And, and, and 
it's interesting to see Joash's reaction. Because as we can kind of tell, if, if, the, if this temple or if this uh, area of sacrifice was in Joash's place of residence, he was probably the leader of the town. He was probably higher up on it. And, and you would think that he would be the harshest one towards Gideon because of that. But what does he say? He says, is Baal not a god himself? Can he not contend for himself? Why do we need to fight for him? Listen, if Baal is real, the person who did this will be dead in the morning. If not, he's not a real god. So even in his own spiritual oppression and lack of understanding who's serving the real God is, he understands that, hey, if this idolatry and if this idol is destroyed, God will, he's a God. He can handle it himself. He doesn't need people. And, and they kind of give him this nickname of, of Jerubal, which is, which is funny because it's let Baal contend for himself. Let him fight his own battles. We don't need to. We've got the Midianites to worry about. We don't need to worry about this God. And so by doing that, he, he frees his people unknowingly from spiritual oppression by idol worship. Now they're not there yet, but what we see is a moving of idol worship to not idol worship. And God is, telling, is, is ushering his people out of that idol worship. And that we see that being valiant takes time. But before Gideon is fully convinced, he, he does the wool test. And I know sometimes we like to say, I'm going to place my wool before the Lord to see it. And, and I really think that's, that's not the appropriate response we ought to have when God is calling us to do something. Our own doubts of a situation of what God is calling us to shouldn't require an assurance because we serve a God who is assured of who we are and who is calling us to do and he equips us as we're doing it. And so as we read through 36 through 40, it's, then Gideon said to God, if you are to save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. See, oftentimes just once isn't enough for us to be assured of what God has to call us for. Oftentimes it's, well, I need double assurance, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test God again. I'm going to do this again because I want to be extra sure. It's like the idea of, of flipping a coin, heads, heads or tails, and you, know, you, you flip it, and it, you want tails, and it reaches heads, and you're like, okay, i got to flip it again just to make sure. Flip it again, it's heads and not tails, and you're like, okay, one more time, God. And if, it, if it's heads, then I'll follow. And then you flip it again, it's tails. It's like, well, God, it says tails, so I'm... I'm you must not be wanting me to do this. And we've missed the whole purpose of following God. He doesn't ask us, he doesn't desire us to find ways to assure ourselves 
of what he's calling us to. He calls us to be obedient to what he's calling us to. And until we can completely trust God, which in all honesty may not happen on this side of eternity, we can't truly be valiant in all we do, but we strive in our faith and continually to grow in trusting the Lord. You see, we first find Gideon in the wine press, fearful of his life, fearful of his resources. And then we see a slight move to free his townspeople from spiritual oppression. Then, then we see another slight move when, when the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east come and God calls him, pick up your sword and go. And so he goes and he picks up his sword but then we see, I got to lay out the, the fleece just to make sure. I got to lay out it again just to make sure. And that, that we see it's a process, and it's not a linear process for us. But it's a process of our trusting in God. And as you go into the, the next, into the, the rest of the story, you see Gideon acting in valiancy, even on the edges of that rashness, thinking without consequences and making poor decisions going into the future. But what we find in this specific passage is Gideon learning how to be valiant. And, and what does this look like for us then? What, why, why is this passage in the Bible so important for us to take into consideration? Could this mean us stepping out in our faith and telling someone that needs to hear the gospel about it? Does this mean maybe sharing with, with someone who's close to us about the gospel? You know, believers need to have valor in their everyday lives because God has called us out of fear and into being men and women of valor. Could living a life of valor be one of distinction from those that you work with? a clear distinction that I'm not partaking in what everybody else partakes in? Could it be understanding and honoring the Sabbath completely and having a good, robust understanding of, of what does Sabbath really mean? Is it me, does it mean that I can step back and, and do nothing, go play around to golf? Or does it mean that my focus can be completely on God for that day? and living in the wonderful reality of all that he's given me, and being able to put all my thoughts and attentions and affections towards him. Perhaps another situation could be offering forgiveness to someone that you don't think deserves forgiveness. Maybe it's listening to someone that we may not agree with, not hearing what they have to say to prove them wrong, but just to hear their story. So we can gain perspective and we can love them. Being valiant does require obedience to God, but it also takes time. And as, as we have seen throughout this narrative, God is the one who calls and makes us valiant and gives us the strength to be valiant. It wasn't instantaneous, but it took them a whole life to have courage. In the same way, 
we as followers of Christ need to know that being valiant isn't easy. And it takes time. I believe as we look at this story, and we really understand that, that we're in the place of the Israelites, needing that freedom in our sin, needing that freedom from oppression, and calling out to God often without understanding that we need first to be freed from our spiritual oppression before our physical realities are changed. And as Gideon was the judge, though not perfect, freed his people from both spiritual and physical oppression, God, through Christ Jesus on the cross, was the perfect judge to free us completely from the oppression of sin in our lives, to wipe us clean with his blood. So we no longer have to worry about being under the oppression of sin, but under the grace of God. And we find this tension in knowing that we need to be valiant, but we can't do it alone. That we need to, to end our, our sinful desires, but we can't do it on our own. But we know that the Holy Spirit is working in and through us to make us into his image. I'm going to invite the band to come on up as we f- close up here. Just as the Lord's presence with Gideon provided the necessary valiancy he needed to free his people, Christ's presence with us provides us with the necessary valiancy to live the life that Christ has called us to live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for who you are and for your goodness and your kindness and how you are calling us to be valiant and you don't just leave it up to us but you provide us that strength. You provide us with that power through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, we don't just take this as, as ways that we know your word, but as a way we can put it into practice, into action, into loving others, and to being valiant in a way that you have called us to be. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the death of your son and the resurrection, the ascension and his return. Father, we thank you. And our church say, Amen.